Since the early 1900s, there have been case reports describing the presence of columnar epithelium in the esophagus, a structure typically lined with squamous epithelium. There are only a few descriptions about its pathophysiological significance until Dr. Norman Barrett, a British thoracic surgeon, published a paper about this finding in 1950. He argued that the stomach, a columnar lined structure, can extend upwards into the mediastinum in a condition called congenital short esophagus, thereby explaining the presence of columnar epithelium in an intrathoracic structure. Research published by other physicians would soon dispel this hypothesis and demonstrate that this columnar lined intrathoracic structure was actually an esophagus and not a stomach and the result of changes from chronic reflux rather than a congenital condition. The legacy of Dr. Norman Barrett continues to live until this day, however, and the presence of columnar-lined epithelium in the esophagus is still widely known as Barrett's esophagus. Today, our patient has Barrett's esophagus, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast written by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is entitled, Scoping Out for Dysplasia, an Approach to Barrett's Esophagus. All right, time for a minute physiology. The esophagus is a muscular tube, approximately 25 centimeters in length, that functions in the transfer of food from the pharynx into the stomach. Its mucosa is normally lined with squamous cell epithelium. Chronic gastroesophageal reflux of acid from the stomach into the distal esophagus promotes intestinal metaplasia, which is defined as the replacement of one fully differentiated tissue by another type of fully differentiated tissue. Intestinal metaplasia occurs because acid reflux damages the squamous epithelium, exposing multipotent stem cells in the basal layers to gastric juice and thereby stimulating their abnormal differentiation into columnar cells. These columnar cells are more resistant to acid damage due to secretion of mucin and expression of the tight junction protein Claudin. However, further reflux of acid and inflammation into the columnar-lined esophagus can result in dysplasia of the columnar cells, which can ultimately transform into esophageal adenocarcinoma a malignancy that carries a high risk of morbidity and mortality. The prevalence of Barrett's esophagus is estimated to be around 1-2% in the general population and approximately 15% of patients with chronic GERD. In patients with Barrett's esophagus, the prevalence of low-grade dysplasia is estimated to be around 10%, while the prevalence of high-grade dysplasia or intramucosal carcinoma is around 7%. The annual risk of progression from Barrett's esophagus to adenocarcinoma increases depending on the degree of dysplasia. The risk of progression to adenocarcinoma per year is 0.1 to 0.3% for non-dysplastic Barrett's, 1 to 3% for Barrett's with low-grade dysplasia, and 10 to 30% for Barrett's with high-grade dysplasia. Thus, patients at risk for Barrett's esophagus may require screening, surveillance, and treatment, which will be the focus of today's podcast. All right, so now that we've talked about the basic physiology, let's talk about the approach. Barrett's esophagus is not an acute medical presentation. 
and is not typically a reason patients present to the emergency department. Instead, it is commonly encountered when patients present to clinic for symptoms of GERD or found incidentally when patients undergo upper endoscopy or EGD for investigations of other presentations such as dyspepsia or screening for esophageal and gastric varices. On history, you should ask about symptoms of GERD. Does your patient report typical symptoms of heartburn? For instance, a burning retrosternal pain that radiates up towards the throat, acid regurgitation of bitter material, or water brash, the spontaneous appearance of copious amounts of saliva in the mouth. GERD can also present with atypical symptoms, including angina-like chest pain, cough, wheezing, hoarseness, nausea, and globus sensation. Note that the frequency and severity of heartburn symptoms is not predictive of the severity of esophageal mucosal damage. Similarly, the presence of reflux symptoms is neither sensitive nor specific for Barrett's or esophageal adenocarcinoma. In fact, around 40% of patients with esophageal cancer do not report a history of GERD symptoms. You should also ask about complications of chronic reflux disease. Patients may present with dysphagia or dinophagia. This is usually due to reflux esophagitis, but it can also be a symptom of stricturing. Other key symptoms to ask include asking about weight loss, symptoms of anemia such as fatigue, presyncope, chest pain or shortness of breath, early satiety, intractable vomiting, or GI bleeding, such as coffee ground emesis, melina, or hematochesia. The presence of these alarm symptoms should warrant a more urgent referral to a gastroenterologist, as they could be clues to an underlying malignancy. Finally, your history should include asking about risk factors for Barrett's esophagus, including chronic GERD symptoms greater than 5 years, age greater than 50 years, male gender, tobacco use, central obesity, Caucasian race, and first-degree relative with Barrett's esophagus or esophageal adenocarcinoma. The physical exam of Barrett's esophagus is nonspecific. You should look for the presence of central obesity, as this is one of the risk factors that may indicate a patient needs screening endoscopy. Additionally, many patients with Barrett's esophagus present with metabolic syndrome or its complications, so it is important to screen for those as well. Now that we've assessed our patient, let's talk about the approach to screening, surveillance, and treatment. It is important to note that guidelines for screening the general population for Barrett's esophagus differs between countries and professional societies. The 2016 American College of Gastroenterology, or ACG, guidelines recommend screening patients who have chronic GERD symptoms, defined as greater than 5 years, in addition to two other risk factors, age greater than 50, male gender, tobacco use, central obesity, Caucasian race, and or first-degree relative with Barrett's esophagus or esophageal adenocarcinoma. However, the most recent Canadian Task Force of Preventative Healthcare Guidelines published in 2020 actually recommend against screening patients for Barrett's esophagus regardless of a history of chronic GERD symptoms. The decision to undergo screening for Barrett should therefore be made on an individual basis after counseling regarding the risks and benefits of screening. Remember, patients may come with at least partial knowledge and anxiety on risks of cancer associated with reflux. It is important to explain the low incidence of this association before you embark on a risk assessment. Based on what we discussed earlier about prevalence, a good phrase to tell your patients would be, 
In patients with chronic reflux for over five years, the risk of cancer is less than 1 in 100, or 1%. The diagnosis of Barrett's esophagus is made both endoscopically and histologically. On EGD, intestinal metaplasia from Barrett's esophagus will appear as an extension of salmon-colored mucosa into the tubular esophagus at least one centimeter or greater proximal to the GE junction. The extent of metaplasia is described using the PROG classification, which takes into account both the circumferential and maximal segment length of metaplasia. Biopsies from areas of metaplasia should be taken using the Seattle protocol of four-quadrant biopsies every two centimeters over the entire length of the Barrett segment. These samples are then sent to the pathology lab to make a histological diagnosis. On histology, the hallmark finding of intestinal metaplasia is the presence of goblet cells. Goblet cells are a specialized type of epithelial cell that secrete mucin and are typically not found in esophageal tissue. In order to make a diagnosis of Barrett's, at least eight random sample biopsies should be taken and read by two separate pathologists, one of whom specializes in GI pathology. Now that our patient has undergone endoscopic and histologic evaluation, how do we interpret the results and proceed with surveillance and treatment? If initial endoscopic evaluation for Barrett's is negative, no further repeat EGD is needed. If endoscopy reveals esophagitis, an EGD should be repeated 8 to 12 weeks after PPI therapy to ensure healing of esophagitis, as it can mask the presence of underlying Barrett's. If biopsies reveal non-dysplastic Barrett's, patients should have repeat EGD every 3 to 5 years for surveillance. Eradication therapy is typically not indicated in these patients, given the low risk of progression to adenocarcinoma. If biopsies reveal Barrett's indefinite for dysplasia, patients should have a repeat EGD and biopsies six months after optimization of PPI therapy. If biopsies reveal Barrett's with low-grade dysplasia, a repeat EGD and biopsies should also be done six months after optimization of PPI therapy. If low-grade dysplasia is persistent on the second confirmatory examination, the patient should be offered eradication therapy. Patients with low-grade dysplasia who are older or have multiple comorbidities and may not be able to tolerate endoscopic therapy can also be offered the option of annual surveillance EGD as an alternative to eradication therapy. If biopsies reveal Barrett's with high-grade dysplasia or intramucosal carcinoma, a repeat confirmatory examination is not required, as these are indications for eradication therapy. Now that we've talked about the diagnosis and screening for Barrett's, let's talk about an approach to treatment. All patients who screen positive for Barrett's esophagus, regardless of whether or not they have symptomatic GERD, require once daily PPI for chemo prevention. Twice-daily PPI dosing is not routinely recommended except in patients whose GERD symptoms are not well-controlled or require twice-daily PPI to control their esophagitis. Currently, the standard of care for endoscopic therapy is multimodal, which combines both endoscopic resection methods, like endoscopic mucosal resection, or EMR, and endoscopic submucosal dissection, ESD, and endoscopic ablation methods, which include radiofrequency ablation, cryotherapy, and argon plasma coagulation. 
To start off, any area of Barrett's with macroscopic abnormalities or nodularities on endoscopic assessment should be resected with endoscopic mucosal resection, or EMR, or endoscopic submucosal dissection, or ESD. These methods of endoscopic resection can provide a large tissue sample that can be sent to pathology for staging. However, they also carry greater risks of bleeding and perforation compared to ablative therapies. While ESD allows for on-block removal of larger lesions compared to EMR, it has only recently been adapted in North America and therefore is less commonly performed than EMR. After resection of abnormal lesions, the remaining areas of smooth Barrett's should be ablated. Radiofrequency ablation is the most commonly used modality for ablating Barrett's. RFA uses a balloon or paddle-shaped device with an electrode that induces thermal injury on areas of intestinal metaplasia, allowing squamous epithelium to regrow in the esophagus. Risks of RFA, or radiofrequency ablation, include post-procedure chest pain, stricturing, bleeding, and perforation. Cryotherapy is a relatively newer endoscopic procedure that uses liquid nitrogen to rapidly freeze and thaw target tissue, triggering cell death. Studies have shown that cryotherapy can successfully eradicate high-grade dysplasia or intestinal metaplasia and may be associated with decreased rates of post-procedure pain and stricturing. However, little long-term data is available, and RFA, or radiofrequency ablation, remains the first-choice modality for ablative therapy. Argon plasma coagulation, or APC, is a long-standing endoscopic therapy traditionally used to manage bleeds in the GI tract, but was also one of the first endoscopic therapies used to treat Barrett's. However, it is less commonly used now due to increased risk of stricturing in the esophagus. Finally, following successful endoscopic treatment of Barrett's and complete eradication of intestinal metaplasia, surveillance endoscopy should be continued to monitor for recurrence of dysplasia. The frequency of surveillance endoscopy largely depends on the length of the initial segment of Barrett's, the degree of dysplasia, and practitioner variation. According to the 2016 ACG guidelines, patients with low-grade dysplasia before ablation therapy should undergo repeat endoscopy every six months for the first year and annually thereafter. Patients with high-grade dysplasia before ablation therapy should undergo repeat endoscopy every three months for the first year, every six months in the second year, and annually thereafter. All right, time for our Medicine Minute. Did you know? Traditionally, dysplasia in Barrett's esophagus was treated surgically with esophagectomy, a procedure associated with high rates of morbidity and mortality. A multi-center, sham-controlled trial published in the New England Journal of Medicine demonstrated that radiofrequency ablation was associated with high rates of eradication of both low- and high-grade dysplasia, intestinal metaplasia, and reduced the risk of disease progression. Since then, it has become the most commonly used modality of eradication therapy in patients with Barrett's esophagus, and esophagectomy is typically only reserved for patients with adenocarcinoma. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled Scoping Out for Dysplasia, an Approach to Barrett's Esophagus. This episode was written by Dr. Lewis Wynn, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Robert Pachara, gastroenterologist, and Dr. Don Thawanka Wajaratne general internist. This episode was recorded and produced by Alison Lai. The Internet Work series was created by Alison Lai and is executively produced by Alison Lai, Zara Morali, and Leah Karyanopoulos. Theme song by Lakshma Fazantha Mohan. 
As always, we have an associated infographic on our website at www.theinternetwork.com. If you like this podcast, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening and we hope to see you again soon.